You're listening to Midi Storytime, part of the Spare Change Library. This week we're reading the latest chapter of The Bride of the Tomb by Mrs. Alex McVeigh Miller. Chapter 11 Late in the evening she awoke, feeling rested and refreshed by her long sleep. Her headache was quite gone, and Haiti found her sitting in the armchair when she came in with supper. She drank a cup of tea, ate a few mouthfuls of food, and declared herself much better. Old Haiti, however, brought in her knitting and pertinaciously sat out the evening with her, with the intention, no doubt, of listening for sounds from below and marking their effect on her captive. But no sound, no groans, broke the stillness. Fanny Colville, in the new hope that had dawned upon her, had refrained all day from the groans and cries that usually gave vent to her despair. She was impatiently waiting for the return of her visitor of the night before. Haiti had not visited the poor chained captive since the night she had incarcerated Lily in her new lodging. In fact, there was no entrance to the dungeon except through the trapdoor in this room. Haiti had taken her a week's rations that night, and scowlingly bade her to abstain from her noise or it would be worse for her. She now concluded that the captive had obeyed her mandate, or that death had at last removed her out of her power. It was with a feeling of relief at the last thought that she left Lily's room, telling her with a malicious grin that old Nero was loose in the garden as usual. It was almost midnight before Lily ventured to seek poor Fanny Colville again. Long before she descended the stairs, she could hear the sound of the rusty chain as the poor woman tossed restlessly on her bed of pain. Her wild eyes lighted glaringly at the young girl's entrance. "'I thought you were not coming,' she said pathetically. "'I dared not come earlier,' Lily answered, relating the cause of her detention. "'Old Haiti is a fiend,' said Fanny, briefly and comprehensively. "'I have been revolving in my mind a plan of escape for us both,' said Lily, proceeding to detail it to her eager listener. But Fanny sighed and looked down at her skeleton limbs and the heavy chain. "'That would do for you, but not for me,' she said. "'I am too weak. It is a long way from here to the city.' We have no money. We have to walk several miles to your father's house. You see, I know the distance. I came here in daylight. I can tell you the way to go, but my wasted limbs would not carry me a mile. I should only fall by the way and be a hindrance to you. Lily sighed as her clear-headed companion thus presented the difficulties in their way. I had forgotten your exceeding weakness and the ardor of my hopes, said she. Besides, continued Fanny, look at this chain. We have nothing with which to cut the leather or file the iron. I cannot get away from this staple. Can I, then, do nothing to help you, my poor creature? cried Lily, in great distress, as she saw how futile was the plan she had proposed. Of course there is, answered Fanny, hopefully. The plan you spoke of is quite feasible for you. Put it into operation as soon as possible. I feel almost assured of your success. Then, as soon as you have told your story to your father, tell him mine also, and entreat him to send a force of police out here to arrest the leverets and liberate me. Certainly I could do that, said Lily, brightening. That would be the better plan, after all. But still I cannot bear to leave you here alone, poor soul, in your wretchedness. Who can tell what may happen ere relief can reach you? Perhaps this slow starvation may finish its dreadful work upon you. Never fear, was the hopeful reply. I have subsisted like this for two long years, yet I feel the flame of life still brightly burning in my wasted frame. And, think you, I cannot endure a few more days' confinement when you have given me such hope to feed upon? 
Her eyes were brightly burning in her wasted face, and her parched lips tried to smile. She took her visitor's little white hand caressingly between her own bony members and looked at it in fond admiration. "'You are a beautiful girl,' she said. "'Ah, would you believe that I was once a pretty girl, and that I am young still, but little older than you, perhaps, for I am only twenty, though trouble and starvation have made me prematurely old.' Lily looked the astonishment she felt, for indeed that poor face, with all the curves and lines of flesh stricken out of it by the sharp pangs of starvation, had indeed no mark to discern whether she were young or old. True, the matted locks of black hair were too thick for those of age, but they were thickly streaked with silver threads. Harold Colville's wretched victim retained now no trace of either youth or beauty. Lily remained with her several hours, feeling all the while that she ran a great risk in remaining, yet still unwilling to leave the unhappy woman who showed such pitiful pleasure in seeing once more the friendly face of a human being. But she was forced to go at length, having listened to the story of Fanny's life, and exchanged a like friendly confidence. "'I may not see you again, Fanny,' she said, "'for I may make the attempt tomorrow. "'It must be made in the daytime, you know, when Nero is chained up. But you may rest assured that if I succeed in escaping, I shall lose no time in having you liberated, and your guilty captors brought to punishment. May God help you, said the prisoner fervently. I will pray for your success. And with a sigh, she kissed the white hands and looked lovingly after the slight form as it glided away. Lily went back to her room, half apprehensive that the old witch might be waiting for her there. But all was safe. The room was vacant of all but her own sweet presence. She disrobed herself, extinguished the lamp, and lying down upon the bed fell into a light slumber, broken by many fitful and strangely troubled dreams. She awakened only when the summer sun was shining high in the heavens. Haiti was waiting with her breakfast and seemed even more petulant than usual. "'It seems to me you require more sleep than anyone I ever saw,' she said tartly. "'After sleeping all day yesterday, you cannot even get awake for your breakfast this morning.' I dare say you would sleep heavily yourself, Haiti, if you had been drugged as I was yesterday, retorted the young girl good-humouredly. And really, I am feeling ill and weary this morning. The warm weather and close confinement begin to tell on my health, sadly. Perhaps I may escape you yet through the welcome gates of death. No danger of that, was the quick reply. Youth and health can bear much more than you have had to stand yet, my fine lady. She went out and did not return until noon. Her prisoner lay dressed upon the bed with flushed and burning cheeks and strangely glittering eyes. Haiti, she said, I cannot eat my dinner. I am feeling very strangely. I have a dreadful feeling here. She pressed her hand upon her heart and seemed to gasp for breath. Go, send for the doctor as quickly as possible. Perhaps I am about to die. Haiti looked at her in doubt a moment. The suffering aspect of the captive reassured her. She was evidently ill. I will send at once for Dr. Pratt, said she, leaving the room in haste, but not forgetting to lock the door. I have sent old Peter for the doctor, said she, returning, but it may be several hours before he returns. It is a long way to the city. Sit down and stay with me, then, Haiti. I am afraid to remain alone when I feel so strangely. Ten, fifteen minutes elapsed. Then the patient said faintly, Haiti, for the love of heaven, try and get me a glass of wine. Perhaps it may relieve this wild fluttering and palpitation of my heart. Again, Haiti went out, locking the door as before. The patient sprang up and stood waiting when the witch returned. 
The key grated, the door swung open, but at that instant Haiti received a dexterous push that sent her sprawling into the middle of the room, the wine glass crashing on the floor. Before she could rise, Lily sprang past her into the hall, slammed and locked the door, removed the key, and ran wildly down the stairs. The outer door was fastened, but the key was in the lock. As she paused to remove it, she could hear the old woman's frenzied shrieks of anger and despair on realizing her situation. She flung the door open, flew down the path, pushed open the heavy iron gate, and ran wildly down the lonely country road, the afternoon sun beating hotly down on her unprotected head, the dust flying thick and fast beneath the rapid pit-a-pat of her small, slippered feet. Chapter 12 she was free! She was free! That happy thought beat time in Lily's heart to her wildly rushing feet. She was outside of that horrible prison. Old Haiti was locked in and could not pursue her. Old Peter could not return for several hours. She had that much time in advance of them. Only a few miles lay between her and her loved home. Surely, surely, with the start she had, she could distance her enemies and reach the haven of rest for which she yearned and prayed. She ran on and on, her brain reeling, her heart beating almost to suffocation, the perspiration running down her face in streams. Sheer exhaustion at last caused her to slacken her pace and look behind her at the lonely stretch of road over which her flying feet had swiftly carried her. The old house in which she had passed such awful hours was out of sight. A turn in the road had hidden it from view. No baleful pursuer was on her track yet. She turned and looked before her. A long stretch of country road, dotted here and there with poor-looking houses, lay ahead. She wet her handkerchief in a rill that trickled by the side of the road, bounded about her throbbing head, and set forward again, steadily, but at a less swinging pace than she had used before. Exhausted nature could not hold out at the rapid rate with which she had begun. On and on she went through the blistering sunshine. Her head ached, the hot road burnt her feet. The warm wind blew the dust into her strained and weary eyes. No matter, she did not heed these trifling things. She was free. That was the glad refrain to which her bounding heart kept time. She was so happy she could not realize her great physical weakness and weariness. It seemed to her at last that hours had passed since she had set forth on her journey, carefully following some directions Fanny Colville had given her. The houses and lots began to stand nearer together. She was getting nearer to the great city. She began to be afraid that she would meet old Peter Leverett returning to his home after his errand to Dr. Pratt. At last, she came to a little house standing apart from the others. She peeped in and saw an elderly woman sitting at the open door, sewing on a coarse garment, and singing blithely at her task. She opened the gate and went up to her. "'Will you let me come in and rest, and have a drink of water?' said she, gently. "'I am very tired.' The woman looked up in surprise. God knows what she thought of the poor girl standing there bareheaded and dusty in her blue morning dress, looking so drooping and weary, but she moved aside and said kindly, Yes, dear heart, come in and rest, and have a bit and a sup. You look as if you needed all three. The kind words and gentle smile went to the lonely girl's heart. Tears started into her eyes as she took the offered glass of water and drained it thirstily. I thank you. I do not wish anything to eat she answered wearily. But if you will give me an old bonnet, I will be glad. I have no bonnet, you see, and an old dress, for I do not wish to go into the city with this morning dress. I will pay you well, indeed I will. See, I will give you my diamond ring. The woman started in surprise as her strange visitant turned the costly ring upon her finger. 
Here is some strange mystery, she thought within herself. The girl is running away, mayhap, and wants a disguise. She went to a closet and brought out an old straw hat and thick veil, and a long, light sack somewhat worn. I will not take your ring, my dear, she said kindly. You may take these things, though, and welcome. Maybe I am doing wrong in helping you to run away, but then again I may be doing you a great kindness. You look very forlorn, my poor dear. Lily went to work in a dazed kind of way, putting on the long sack over her dress and the hat on her head. This done, she wound the thick veil tightly over her face and turned to go. "'I thank you for your kindness, my good woman,' she said. "'I will come back here sometime and reward you richly. I will indeed. "'Now I am going. If anybody comes here to ask about me, be sure to tell them that I have not been here. "'Do not let them know.' Whatever else she was going to say died unuttered on her pale lips. Exhausted nature was giving away. She threw up her hands wildly, staggered forward a step, and fell fainting on the floor. "'Poor soul,' said the good woman, kneeling down on the floor and loosening the hat and veil from her head. "'She is dead tired out.' She straightened Lily out upon the floor and dashed cold water into her white face, but with no success. The swoon was a deep one, and it was fully an hour before the girl was sufficiently revived to be lifted up by the woman's strong arms and laid upon a clean white bed. "'A beauty and no mistake,' thought the warm-hearted creature, smoothing back the damp golden ringlets from the marble-white brow on the pillow. Lily's large blue eyes opened and looked up at her in amaze. "'Am I sick? Have I been here long?' she inquired, struggling up to a sitting posture and looking out through the window anxiously. "'Why, the sun is setting,' said she, turning her bewildered face on her kind attendant. "'Yes, you fainted and were a long time coming too,' was the answer." You have been here more than an hour. Lily slipped down from the bed and began to put on her hat and veil with trembling hands. I must be going, she said. I have far to go yet, and it is growing so late. Before the astonished woman could remonstrate, she was out of the house, going slowly on her way. She was so weak she could not walk very fast. Her impetuous will alone sustained her dragging footsteps. Thick twilight had fallen before she entered the busy, bustling city. Sorely frightened at finding herself alone in the gathering darkness, yet afraid that the glare of the gaslights would reveal her shrinking form to her pursuers, she shrank along in the friendly shadows, drawing back nervously from the hurrying forms that brushed past her, and trembling at every footstep behind her. But in spite of her nervousness, she at length entered the elegant street where her father resided. All was gaiety and life in the brilliant houses as she hurried past them. The light from the drawing room streamed out upon her shrinking form. Wild and entrancing strains of music filled the night air. Long lines of carriages were drawn up in front of some of the houses whose owners were holding balls and receptions. She knew them all. They were all friends of hers. But she flitted past them like a spirit, pausing not in her frightened yet happy course until she stood before the windows of her father's handsome mansion. These windows were lighted too, but not so brightly as some. Music, too, stole through them, but it was soft and subdued. Death had been there so recently they had not the heart to be gay, she thought. Wild with her joy, she threw off her disguising hat and veil, and running up the broad marble steps rang the bell. It was opened by the stately old servitor whom she had been accustomed to from childhood. But instead of welcoming her home, the gray-haired old man fled wildly down the hall after one glance into her lovely white face. "'He takes me for a ghost!' she thought, 
laughing and running after him down the wide hall till she reached the drawing-room door, which stood open for coolness that sultry night. She stopped in the doorway, framed like a picture in the hall gaslights, and looked into the room. They were all there before her, her dear ones. The piano stood in the center of the room, its back towards her, with Mrs. Vance on the music stool directly facing her. Her white hands strayed over the pearl keys, and Lancelot Darling stood beside her and turned the leaves of her music. A low divan was near them, and Ada rested upon it, looking very fair and ethereal in her deep mourning dress. Her father sat beside her, looking very grave and sad. "'Papa! Papa!' cried Lily in a choking voice. The passionate cry, low as it was, was distinctly heard by the quartet. They all looked up and saw her standing there in the light with her wild white face and streaming golden hair. That concludes this week's installment of The Bride of the Tomb. This production of The Bride of the Tomb features the voice talents of Laura Bang and Damien Katz. Chris Hallberg voices the intro and outro narratives. The theme music is The Guava Rag by Brett Donnelly. Midi Storytime in the Spare Chambers Library produced by Lancelot Darling and Friends. This podcast is brought to you by DimeNovels.org, the Edward T. LeBlanc Memorial Dime Novel Bibliography.